Good morning. We are, uh, I think if we just stopped right now, we'd, we'd be well fed. Give me a drink here. We definitely greet each one of you in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior and our Lord. Um, I think it's been about a year ago, maybe in October or something like that of last year, that I spoke on uh, Colossians chapter 3, uh, 1 through 4. And uh, that basically gave us, if you then be risen with Christ, or since you've been risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above and not on things of this earth. So we basically thought on heavenly things. It was a, an interesting study on my part. But now we've come to the verse 5 through 9, and it's like Paul took a, a different angle. Uh, he started to get right down to where we live. And those things that we'll talk about this morning is not really some things that we really would like to even speak about, but they're here in God's Word, and so we're going to cover them. That's one thing I do enjoy about expositional preaching by taking uh, the Word of God and going verse by verse. You can't hide from anything. It's, you cover it all there. You have to preach the Word, be instant in season, out of season, reprove Rebuke and exhort with all long suffering and doctrine. So this morning, I think before we start, what we're going to do is read uh, these four or five verses together, and then we're going to go to God in prayer, and then we'll get to work. Chapter 3, verses 5 through 9. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, or greed, which is idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away, anger, Wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another. We'll stop right there. Let's come to God in prayer. Heavenly Father, we come humbly before you just now. And of our own flesh, we do feel weak. But Lord, I'm thankful that by your power and the power of your spirit, we can be made strong. The Apostle Paul said that I can do all things through Christ, which strengthens me. And so we do rely completely upon the power of your scripture, Lord. The word of God is powerful and it's sharper than any two-edged sword. And so, Father, we are so thankful for that. We're thankful for the word of God. We're thankful that it is absolute. It is truth, and it is right. And so, Lord, we look into your word this morning with fond anticipation of what you will teach us. And, Lord, the same power of the Holy Spirit that was given on Pentecost, it's the same power that we have available today. And so we thank you and praise you and look forward to what you will give us this morning and Father, we do expect nothing but blessing because we are praying this in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. You know, it might surprise us this morning that the living Christ or the living life involves putting sin to death. Didn't Paul just tell us that had already been done. Actually, we go up a couple of verses here. I believe in uh, verse 3, and he says, For you have died, your life is hidden with Christ in God. The old man has been killed. 
But Romans 6, 6 tells us at the moment of salvation, our old self was crucified with Christ that our body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. We should no longer live in sin. Positionally, that is true. Before God, there is no condemnation. However, it must be worked out in our daily lives as believers. There can be no holiness, no sanctified life, or spiritual growth in our lives where sin runs unchecked. It cannot happen. We have to discipline our own lives. It takes work. It's a struggle. It's a battle. Well, we have died to sin's penalty, as I said, and we know that. On the cross, Jesus paid that penalty. But sin's power over our flesh is strong and our flesh is weak. We all find this out. At least I do. I find that my flesh is very weak. And that is why we must continually put sin to death. By yielding to the Holy Spirit of God and to his word. That's the only way we can do it. We can't do it on our, by ourselves alone. Romans 8.13 says, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. The principle of Zechariah 4.6 says, It applies in victory over Satan. It is not by power, nor by, it is not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit. Ephesians 6.17 says, and the spirit's weapon is the word. 1 John 2.14, as the believer is strong in the word, he overcomes the evil one. Ephesians 5.18 says, being filled with the Holy Spirit, and Colossians 3.16 says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. So it's pretty easy to see how we do conquer or we put sin to death. It is through the spirit of God, through the word of God. If we don't read and study the word of God, we can't expect to conquer sin in our lives. It's just that plain and simple. Just as Romans 8.1 tells us that there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, the penalty of sin, as we said, has been dealt with through the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is equally true that sin still attacks us, and it must, as a deadly enemy, be killed by the Holy Spirit and through the Word of God. That's the only way. We have to be sin killers, so to speak. And it can only be done through the Holy Spirit and the Word of God. Only through the Spirit and by the Word can we live a holy and a sanctified life before God. And you know, each and every one of us here this morning... We have one thing in common as believers. We all battle with sin, every one of us. The desire of the new inner man is to live a life that's pleasing to God and fulfilling his word. Although we are new creatures on the outside, on the inside, I'm sorry, we are new creatures on the inside we live in these creatures in old bodies on the outside. And that's where the conflict comes. And our bodies can either be instruments for good or they can be instruments for evil, depending on how we use them. That is why Paul wrote in Romans 12, 1 and 2, he says, I urge you, therefore, brothers... Brother Levon and I was just talking about that a little while ago. I urge you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies 
of God to present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And he says, be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you might prove what the will of God is, which is good, acceptable, and perfect. We cannot be, con the only way that we can be conformed or not conformed to the world is by being transformed by the renewing of our minds inside. Paul is telling us that the body should be holy under the control of the redeemed Holy Spirit. The body does what the inner man tells it to do. And a spirit-controlled body must do what's good and what is right. We will have this uh, struggle and this battle will continue to take place until the day our bodies will be redeemed. Until we have that glorified body. Romans 8.23, I love that verse. But we ourselves, who have the first fruit of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. That will be the only time when I truly don't have to battle sin any longer. We'll have glorified bodies, redeemed completely, new bodies, no sin. Colossians 3, 5 through 9, as we get studying here. Paul gives us a sample list of sins to kill. And the list includes some of the most common and some of the most horrific sins that we as believers might face. They are, however, not the only ones. If we go through the word of God, there is literally many, many, many words that contain sins against God. But the first involves personal sins. The second involves social sins. The first relates to our feelings. The second relates to our speech. In between verses 6 and 7, Paul gives two reasons for putting sin to death. Sins of perverted love. Sins of perverted love. Colossians 3, 5, and really he kind of goes backwards, as we'll see here. He starts out sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed or covetousness, which is idolatry. Number one is sexual immorality. In our society today, it seems like that we live in a sexual revolution. Everywhere, everywhere you look, it's about sex. And it seems like, I know as a boy, it was just as bad when I was a boy, really. Just not as open. Um, sex was a three-letter word that you hardly ever spoke about. Really, it was hush. And now, here we are speaking about it from the pulpit. Probably should have been doing that back then. But you know what? The Bible speaks about it. Sexual immorality. That word translates into porneia, and it refers only to sexual sins. Our English word pornography comes from porneia and graphi, which means a writing, and so therefore pornography is a writing or a picture, picture about sexual sin. And we'll just stop there for just a moment because pornography is, an, it is a situation that we, is very prevalent in our day. When I was a boy, you had to go into a, a store and uh, kind of sneak around if you want to get a, a magazine or something like that. Today, all you got to do is hit the button of the mouse and there you go. It's all right there. 
a matter of seconds. But you know what? Don't ever think, just as a word of warning, don't ever think that you can watch or look at pornography and expect that it will not affect your relationship with Jesus Christ or it will not affect your marriage or it will not affect your relationship with your mother or your father if you're young. It will. It's a battle. I suppose in some sense or another, we all have battled, some more than others, with that sin. But I would encourage us, it has no place in the believer's life. By God's grace and by the word of God, by the Holy Spirit of God, we can live above and beyond that. In the New Testament, it includes any form of illicit sex. In sharp contrast to the prevailing attitude in the ancient world, or in fact in our present day society especially, the Bible strictly strictly forbids, now listen to this, it strictly forbids any sexual activity Outside the marriage bond of a man and a woman. That's what the Bible teaches. And in our society today, you know, I know people like to shack up together before marriage and all this and that. It's sin. That's what the Bible says. It is sin. God made it for man and woman, husband and wife, as a very beautiful thing. And man has taken it and made it ugly and has made it dirty, has made it filthy. Shame on us. Paul was ashamed that it had surfaced in the Corinthian church. And you read 1 Corinthians 5 and it speaks of some of the most horrific don't even like to think about it. Sins. In 1 Corinthians 6.18, Paul told them to flee all immorality. Galatians 5.19 even heads the list as the list of the flesh. Ephesians 5.3 says, it is not proper, as Colby read for us, it is not proper behavior for saints. 1 Thessalonians 4.3 tells us that this is the will of God, your sanctification, that is, that you abstain from sexual immorality. Plain and simple, this should never be practiced among we as believers in Christ. Just the bottom line. Number two is impurity. Impurity and sexual immorality kind of go hand in hand, but... It's more of the thoughts. It means filthiness and uncleanness. It, it goes beyond the act of sexual morality to evil thoughts and intentions of the mind. Lest we think that, um, well, you know, I, I don't commit sexual uh, immorality or adultery, uh, any of these things. Matthew 5.28 says, Jesus said, everyone who looks on a woman to lust after her has committed adultery in his heart already. I could stand up here and say, well, that never happened to me. But I'd be a liar. Because I have red blood thrown through my veins. And... Uh, that's a battle. Mark 7, 21 through 22 says, From within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts, fornication, thefts, adulteries, deeds of coveting, and wickedness, as well as deceit, 
sensuality, envy, pride, and foolishness. Evil behavior always starts with evil thoughts. We see then that the battle against sin, especially sexual sin, always begins right between the ears. It starts in our minds, and it goes to our hearts, and before you know it, people are committing the act. And I think one of the greatest verses to me that helps me battle sin in my own life, especially sexual sin, is this. Philippians 4, verses 8. Paul says, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is right, whatever is honest, whatever is of good report, If there is any excellence and anything worthy of praise, let your mind dwell on these things. Have you ever been depressed? Have you ever, uh, maybe you just have a, a bad day? Think on these things. If you think on the things that are good, the things that are lovely, the things that are right, the things that are honest and of good report, you cannot uh, live in despondency. You cannot live in sin. It won't happen. That will lift us out. The word of God. Oh, what a blessing we have. The word of the living God. That brings up number three, passion and evil desire. The difference between passion and evil desire is really close. They're they're probably cousins. And the difference, it seems, is that passion is that physical vice and the mental, and that evil desire is the mental side of the same vice. One is physical, one's mental. Passion is physical, evil desire is mental. 1 Thessalonians 4, 5. And it says where Paul commands Christians not to live in lustful, Passions like the Gentiles who do not know God. Such behavior is completely forbidden for you and I in Jesus Christ. And Paul then, from passion and evil desires, he goes really to the root cause. He mentions greed covetousness, which is idolatry. And it definitely is the evil root from which all the previous sins come from. That's where it starts. That's why I said Paul actually is working backwards. I kind of wondered about that. I wonder why that is. Was he just trying to get our attention maybe with sexual immorality first? I don't know. If anybody has any thoughts on that, I'd like to hear it. Um, but anyway, uh, covetousness and greed, which is idolatry. Greed. About a month ago, I went into uh, Mike Grover's office. He's a financial advisor, and and uh, I'm getting a little closer to the time where might come near to retirement and uh, so we just I just kind of went in for a little check up there and uh, as I was in there Mike said you know Bruce he said I, I, I got to share something with you I got to share a story and uh, I said well let's hear it so he proceeded to tell me the story about a man many, many years ago, came into his office, and he said, uh, Mike, he said, I want to retire. That's one thing I want you to know, that at 62 years old, I definitely want to retire. And I want to retire with $1.2 million in the bank. I won't retire if I don't have $1.2 million. Mike says, well, that's a pretty lofty goal since he worked at uh, um, FedEx. But he said, yeah, I guess if you really worked hard enough, you could probably do that. 
But he cautioned him a little bit about, you know, make sure, spend time for your family and so on. Well, this man continued to work hard. <laughs> Every time he got any overtime on weekends, he would work and he'd sock that double time in the bank. And it began to grow. And some of them, the uh, funds that he had invested in grew. And finally, here not so long ago, at 62 years old, he came into Mike's and he said, Mike, I've made it. I hit my goal. I'm 62 and I'm going to retire. I got a little over $1.2 million here in, in my portfolio. Well, <laughs> to make a long story short, about three months later, the man came back into his office. But this time, he wasn't walking in. He was in a wheelchair. He couldn't walk. He had a stroke. He couldn't walk. He couldn't talk. He could only say one word. And because there's some children in here, I won't say that word, but I'll abbreviate it. He said, G-D. All he could do was curse God. Can you imagine? Greed. Greed. Completely, totally took a hold of that man. Mike said, all he could do is sit there with tears in his eyes. It was an idol. How about you and me? Maybe I don't have the form of greed quite like that man. But I'll tell you, greed will kill us. It'll destroy us. Because it places selfish desire above the obedience to God. Greed amounts to idolatry. Covetousness and greed is the root, as we said, of all and every sin. When we sin, basically, we are doing what we desire rather than what God desires. We would rather worship ourselves and, and me rather than worshiping God, and that is idolatry. And you know, Paul links sexual immorality, covetousness, and idolatry all together. And in Ephesians 5.3, he says, do not, as Colby read this morning, do not let immorality or any impurity or greed even be named among you. Even be named among you, as is proper among saints. And there must be no filthiness and silly talk or coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. For this you know with certainty that no immoral or impure person or covetous man or greedy man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of God in Christ. That's pretty serious. Let us attack this root cause of sin with the commitment to our Lord Jesus Christ by the power of his word. Verses 5 and 6 gives us the reasons for putting sin to death. And we'll read them. It, for it is on account of these things that the wrath of God will come. And then them you also once walked when you were living in them. That's kind of interesting. You know, I, as I read through that a little bit, for it is account, on account of these things that we had just been talking about that the wrath of God will come. And in them, you once walked when you were living in them. 
You know, I thought about that. That's, in a way, that shows of God's grace, God's mercy, and God's love, and above all, his redemptive power. Almost like that verse. And in them you also walked when you were living in them. God's wrath is his eternal destination of all unrighteousness. Unbelievers will experience the full force of God's eternal wrath. In Romans 1.18, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the ungodliness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Unbelievers are storing up wrath for themselves in the day of wrath and revelations of the righteous judgment of God. Romans 2.5, the wrath of God comes on account of these things. Believers should have no part in them. Sin brings wrath, not blessing, never blessing. It never brings happiness or joy. Because believers have been delivered from the wrath to come, 1 Thessalonians 1.10, and will experience no wrath because the penalty of sin has been paid. We as children of God certainly don't want to act like children of wrath. Even though we as believers have been delivered from God's wrath, Romans 5.9, and we are subject to his chastening, to his disciplining. Hebrews 12, 5 and 6 says this. It reminds us not to forget the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those who the Lord loves, he disciplines and he scourges every son whom he receives. You and those of you who have children, and, and we had children at one time, if you saw that little child, a two-year-old, run out in the street and maybe just kind of play out there, you wouldn't let her there or him. You would go out in that street and you would forcefully pick up that child and bring him back, and you would discipline that child because danger's out there. That's what God does to you and I. He has to, every now and then, grab us from the collar and discipline us because it's dangerous. Sin is going to hurt. It's going to harm us. So God has to react against sin. The unbeliever is his eternal wrath and we as believers is his loving discipline. Sin is a part of the believer's past. And in them you also once walked when you were living in them. Again, God's redemptive power. When I first read that, it didn't hit me quite like that. But then I got to thinking, that is a lovely verse. It really is. That he put that in. And in them you once walked. I don't know how about you, but any of us that have delved into sin in our past lives. I think we hated it. I really do. Paul's telling us what it is like to live in sin. And I think we hated it, many of us. I even heard some of you that really has delved into some of the degradation and woe uh, have said that it, you hated it to the point that really that was kind of what brought you to Christ. Because you could be delivered from your past life. It was a horrible existence. Paul told the believers in Ephesians 5, 2, in Ephesians 2, 1 through 5, and I love this verse, and he says, and you will read it all, and you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom all we once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, that's what I love, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love which he has loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses and sins, made us alive together with Christ, 
By grace you are saved. But God, who is rich in mercy, he saved us and he lifted us out of that sinful life. Why would anyone who had riches return into poverty again? You don't see that happen very often. Once we knew the riches of the Lord Jesus Christ, why would we turn back and live into the slime, into the slum of sin and poverty of sin? Why? Why would we do that? I don't think we would. Romans 6, 1 and 2 says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? May it never be. God forbid, I believe it says in the King James. How shall we who died to sin live in it any longer? We can't. That brings up sins of wicked hate. And Paul goes to now the things that are personal, of our person. But now you also put them all aside, anger, wrath, malice, slander, abusive speech from your mouth. He says, do not lie one to another. These are social sins that are directed against other people. Paul begins with our motive and progresses to the evil act. Put aside, he says, all anger. Put aside. The, the word put aside is from the Greek, apotothema yeah, or something like that. It's a word that is used for taking off your clothes. We all kind of know what that means, take off our clothes. It's to put aside our garments. You know, at the end of the day, most of us usually, we take off those old dirty clothes and we we go take a bath. Well, you don't usually put those dirty clothes back on, not usually. And uh, that's what he's telling us here. Take off the filth and the dirt, your old filthy rags of your old life. That's what he's telling us. Just get rid of them. And Paul's telling us then to put aside the remnants of our old life. And he tells us anger. Orgy is the Greek word meaning anger. And it's a deep and smoldering, resentful bitterness. That's what anger is. We've all seen and we've all experienced it. We've all gone through some anger, probably. And uh, we've seen what happens when people get angry. It usually comes from bitterness, uh, something that we let harbor in our hearts. And before you know it, we kind of explode and we go off. Uh, and that's not a good thing. People get hurt. That's the hard attitude of an angry person. But the Bible says in James uh, 2, 1, 19 and 20, it says, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Seems like so many times for me, I get that verse a little backwards. Instead of being quick to hear, sometimes I'm slow to hear and quick to speak and quick to get angry. And, uh, but God's word tells us to be slow to speak. Slow to get angry. Thumas is a Greek word meaning wrath. And that refers to a sudden outburst of anger. We've all seen what happens when an individual becomes wrathful. The Greeks likened it as a fire in straw. And I know when I was a boy one time, I remember seeing all it took was a little spark and it set a fire on a barn and it burned it to the ground near Dayton, Ohio there. And it uh, only took minutes. It was gone, clear to the ground. And that's the way that wrath works. In a very quick way, very quick time, it can do major damage. There's been people killed just because of wrath. Wrath. 
An example is those in the synagogue of Nazareth who exploded in anger upon hearing Jesus' teachings. Luke 4.28, it says, When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. That must have been an awful thing. The whole synagogue was filled with wrath. Can you imagine? Ephesians 4.31 says, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you among, along with all malice. It is not acceptable behavior for us as believers, as Christians. Malice is a general term for moral evil. In this context, it seems to refer to the harm caused by evil speech. We've all seen what evil words can do when they are used to harm others. One thing about words, once they are said, you can't retract them. You can't take them back. That's especially true in a marriage. We have to be so careful with our words. And I don't know why it is, but sometimes in a marriage to those who we love the most, we actually harm the most maybe. And that's it. We hurt. We hurt with words. We need to be really careful in that area. Anger, wrath, malice often result in slander. The, the Greek word translated slander is really our word blasphemia, where we get our English word blasphemy. When we slander people, what we're really doing is blaspheming God since he created you and I, men and women. James 3.9 says, With the tongue we praise our Lord and the Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in God's likeness. See, God's image. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers, this should never be. Our smut, our... <laughs> Our, much, our speech must not be marred by insults or bad result, or in remarks directed at others. And as I said, that's so easy to do. And next, it brings up abusive speech. And that term, I think, refers mostly to obscene or derogatory speech used to hurt and wound someone. We've all been cussed out, probably. And you know, I've had that happen by people. And that hurts. Man, that, that, that just kind of tears us to the, to the core. It really does. It damages us. And there has been people, I think, maybe children that have had that happen to them when they're young that hardly get over that. And uh, I'm thankful that I grew up in a home where my mother and dad loved me and they showed me that love even with their words rather than curse me out and <laughs> swear at me and call me names and tear me down. But you know, we have to be careful in the church. We can do that. We've got to be really cautious that we love one another. We, we try to build each other up, not tear each other down. We try to encourage each other, strengthen each other, encourage one another to read God's word, to uh, study his word daily. That's what we're to do. That's our desire. Ephesians 5, 4 says there must be no filthiness and silly talk or coarse jesting which are not fitting but rather giving of thanks. Every word we speak counts. Let us use them for good, not evil. Paul warns us against the final sin by exhorting us not to lie to one another. And lest we might think that, well, none of these sins have hit me. 
I'm afraid probably this one probably does. I don't think there's probably a man or a woman alive that can say, well, he never lied. I think it'd be a really great study, I would like to do this sometime, is to go through the complete Bible from Genesis to Revelations and to find every lie that's recorded in the Word of God. There's a few that we found here in Genesis. Genesis 3, 4, and 5, Satan lied in deceiving Adam and Eve right off the get-go. In Genesis 4, 9, Cain lied to God after he murdered Abel. We all know these stories. Genesis 12, 11, 19, Abraham lied claiming Sarah was his sister instead of his wife. In Genesis 18, 15, Sarah lied to the three angelic visitors and to the king of Gerar. In Genesis 27, 7 through 10, Rebekah and Isaac lied to defraud Esau of his birthright. And this list doesn't even get us through the book of Genesis. What happens when we as believers lie? That's not a good thing. We are imitating Satan, really, rather than imitating our Lord Jesus Christ. Now this morning, we have covered these various sins and sins that we need to put to death in our lives, to kill. And if I, as I looked through this whole, these few verses here, I guess what it does to me is it causes me to look so forward to the time when we see in Romans 8.23 when we ourselves groan within ourselves waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons the redemption of our body. I look so forward to that time when I will get a heavenly body, a glorified body. I won't have no more struggle with sin. It'll all be over. Sin and temptation will be gone. When I was a youngster, I remember when I thought about heaven, I thought, huh, it's all going to be streets of gold and it'll be a beautiful place, a beautiful city. And, and that's, that's kind of what I thought about when I thought of heaven. But as I've gotten older, I've actually gotten a lot more homesick for heaven. And I think the reason is because we do get tired. Sin, we get tired of the battle. We do. There's times we feel like throwing up our arms. But you know, brothers and sisters, press on. I can't hardly wait till that time that I'll have no battle with temptations or sin and I'll have that glorified body that I can praise only God and my Savior Jesus Christ. I'm looking so forward to that time. I can't hardly wait. But I'm still here. And you know what? God still has a work for me. He has a work for you. And he wants us to yield our bodies as living sacrifices that are holy and acceptable unto God, which is our reasonable service of worship. That's what God wants from us. That's what he desires. That kind of brings us to application. What we get out of all this? How? How can you and I live victorious in our struggles against sin in this life? How can we do it? I think, first of all, we realize we have to starve it. 
We cannot feed bitterness or anger. We cannot cater to our sexual desires or greed. They have to die. They have got to be put to death. They have to be killed. And it's a continual battle. And I think we've seen that it is only through the word of God and through prayer that we can be victorious in killing sin in our own lives. It's amazing to me that whatever we are trying to overcome in our lives or whatever scripture that we read or whatever uh, text that maybe we're studying, it always comes down to we need to read and study the word of God. We have to have it. it it's, it's just like if we don't eat three meals of food a day, we get sick and we get weak and eventually we'll die. And that's the way it is with the word of God. Dear ones, study it. Meditate on it. Memorize it while you're young. Put it in your hearts that you will not sin against God. Because if you do this, little by little, year after year, you can live a sanctified and a holy life before God. And you know that's the desire, that's my desire, really, from this message this morning is to each one of us that you'll look into your own hearts. We've got just a couple of minutes. For the next just couple of minutes, I'd like to maybe just speak to you just right out of my heart for a moment. You know, I think it's in a group of size, and we're not large, but there's enough here that there's probably, we all struggle. We all struggle with sin. And there's times that we might even feel like giving up. There's times that we might we'll get tired of the struggle. There's times that we get tired of the fight. There's times where we, maybe a trial comes and just knocks us to our knees, knocks us flat on our backs. And maybe for a spell, we just feel like we can't go on. I've been there probably 13 or so years ago. I went through a time like that. There was a trial in my life with one of my children that brought me to the bottom, brought me down, and it hurt. It about tore my heart out. But you know what? God was able to use that time to teach me to look more to him, to teach me to get more into his word, and to teach me that I needed to persevere. I needed to continue on. I thought about the Apostle Paul when he was at the near to the end of his life. And what did he do? He said, I have fought a good fight. I have kept the faith. I have finished my course. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness. And not unto me only, but to all those who believe. And you know what? If Paul could do it, we can do it. We have not gone through nothing like the Apostle Paul. I don't think there's any of us 
who have been beaten, imprisoned, and continued to go out and preach the gospel. But we, there is times we do. We get tired. So if there's anybody here this morning that feels like throwing in the towel, I would beg. I'll plead with you. I'll even get down on my knees. I'd like to tell you one thing, and I know I'm sticking my neck out just a bit. I'm giving away my energy, my time. But if you need to, I'll pray with you all night, if that's what it takes. I'll sit with you. I'll try to encourage. I think we all need it. We need encouragement. We need building up. We need loving. We need kindness. Here at RHC, the elders, the servants, pastors, shepherds, whatever you want to call us, it's not just our desire to preach the word of God, the gospel. We want to live the gospel. That's what we want to do. I was at a reunion of my brother-in-law last night who for 33 years solid pastored the church at Ripon Grace and they gave him a retirement party. And they said, that's one thing they said about him. He was very faithful to preach the word. But not only to preach the word or to preach the gospel, but to live in the gospel. And that's what we desire this morning. We want to live the gospel. I want to see you grow spiritually, mature in the Lord Jesus Christ. That we can be a church that they can say, yes, they love Jesus. We can see it because of their love. So don't, don't let sin or this flesh drag you down to the point where you can't go on. The word of God, the power of God, the Holy Spirit of God, brothers and sisters in Christ want to uphold you we want to lead one another along. And by his grace, at the end of this day, we can say, henceforth, there's laid up for me a crown of righteousness. Now we're going to switch gears. Here at RHC, we always have weekly communion. Probably one of the favorite most favorite times of the service for me. As often as you do these things, you show forth the Lord's death until he comes. It's a reminder of what Jesus Christ has done on that old rugged cross. He took my sins and your sins upon himself that we can live victorious lives in Jesus Christ. There's several things that we need to do. Dan made it very plain to us. I don't think we're really going farther into that. But we need to make sure that we're believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, that we're saved, we're, we're his. Let a person then, he says, examine himself and let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. It does take examination. We need to look into our own heart and see if there is sin there. If it is, let's confess it. First John says, if you confess your sins unto me, he's faithful and just to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. The blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses you from all sin. So this morning, as we partake, partake, of the bread and the cup. Let's do so with great joy, looking forward 
as Dan told us about. We're looking forward to that time where we will be at the marriage supper of the Lamb with all those who've gone on before, with our Savior, and see him face to face. Let's come to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for your written word. I thank you so much for the power of the Holy Spirit of the living God. I thank you, Father, that you can take weak men and still use us, Lord, for your glory and for your good. I pray, Lord, that each one here has been built up. I pray that we have been encouraged. I pray that we have been strengthened. I pray that the word of God has nurtured our hearts and that we will have such a desire to live holy, sanctified lives before you, dear God. We thank you just now for this time that we can worship you in communion. Let us do so with great joy, thanking you for all that you have done on our behalf. I thank you and praise you in Christ's name. Amen.